Thanks for tuning in to Revolutionary Lumpen Radio. In this episode, we're going to explore the autobiography of Edmead Lumpen. He's clearly a revolutionary that's massively inspired me, inspired this podcast. He's a revolutionary Marxist that don't know why but he seems to go unnoticed for the most part on the left his actions with the george jackson brigade are perhaps some of the few instances which revolutionaries have took to combat the u.s state from within the u.s state within the belly of the beast i mean i said that i was gonna do this book and go into the life and legacy of Edmead in the first episode 10 episodes ago now and i just haven't got round to it but you know it's a long book and the first half of the book is just dedicated to telling you his life story basically um he spent i mean i think he spent like over 30 years behind bars he's definitely a lumpen for a lot of his life he was just like criminally just stole shit and just obviously just done what he wanted obviously uh being extremely poor and then while in prison like many other revolutionaries become radicalized and you know took to reading marx's theory and come out with class consciousness and then ever since then he was absolutely done everything that he could to further the course of the proletarian struggle so I'm going to start halfway through the book at part two, Making a Revolution. At the time, it's 1973. He's 30 years old now. Uh, in this episode, we're going to see how he works with uh, a prison house that's for families to help you know, families visit prisoners. He tells you how he successfully forms a prison union there's this time where him and comrades go undercover to attend the Vietnam prisoner of war meeting. He also tells you about the support which he helped give to Native Americans in the area by helping them acquire firearms, explosives and providing white militia to help protect them with. He also tries to seek out a revolutionary organisation that's conducting bombings at the time that he really wants to be a part of. He doesn't know anybody in the area, so that's interesting. And also his attempt to represent a comrade in court. He, like Malcolm X, studied law while in prison. And, you know, he uses this to his advantage. So, you know, without further ado, I'm going to go into it now. This is Chapter 7, Making a Revolution. The world is a dangerous place. Not because of those who do evil 
but because of those who look on and do nothing. Albert Einstein The people at the Stialacoon Prisoners Support House knew I would be coming to stay with them, joining John and his family who were already there. They did not, however, know exactly when I would be arriving. The legal research I'd done for Ross had delayed my departure from Fairbanks. It was near dusk, the day that I arrived, with all my earthly possessions in an old army duffel bag. I set the bag down, knocked on the front door and introduced myself to the radical-looking woman who answered. My arrival wasn't greeted with any great fuss. They were repairing a broken washing machine and I was immediately put to work helping them. Later that evening I was given a tiny room with a bunk. I was finding the speed with which everything was happening somewhat bewildering. Then, that night, just after the fallen asleep, a prisoner's wife came into my little closet of a room and without saying a word, called into my bed. I didn't know who she was and was completely taken by surprise, but I readily went along with what we both wanted. The next day, thinking over what had happened and having learned that my nocturnal visitor was in a relationship with a prisoner, I decided that it had been a mistake, the kind that I wouldn't make again. Many of the McNeil Island prisoners were afraid that the wives and girlfriends might get seduced while staying at the house. As a result, men were not usually accepted as volunteers. John and I were rare exceptions, and he was married. There were no subsequent instances of sexual misconduct on my part. I soon settled into a sexual relationship with one of the female volunteers who staffed the place. She was a community organiser named Barbara, and she was not having a relationship with a prisoner. She sort of glommed on me, and from then on, I, I was hers. The Stialacoon Prisoner's Support House, affectionately known as the inside-slash-outhouse to those of us who'd been involved in finding it a year or so earlier, was located in a nice residential neighbourhood about a block and a half away from the dock where the boat would be going to and from the McNeil Island anchored. It was a large two-and-a-half-storey house divided into about 20 small rooms. Its nice white picker fence and newish aluminium side and concealed a largely run-down interior. In fact, it was because it needed such extensive repairs that supporters of the Chuck's Armsbury's genocide compliant had been able to make this relatively small down payment on the place, raised through the donations collected from the Seattle area radical community. There was an empty gully on one side of the support house, and beyond that, some sparse woods. What happened to be a very respectable and upwardly mobile family lived on the other side. I'm sure that these status-conscious neighbours had no idea that a bunch of crazed radicals were buying the house next door, or they certainly would have objected. In the end, when the house was open, it was all too late for the alarmed little community of Stialacoom, which was primarily made up of military retirees, to mount any effective resistance. About 70% of McNeil Island prisoners' population was from California, and many of the remaining prisoners came from the States even further away. 
the wives and mothers of these men were often on welfare or fixed incomes, and even if they worked full-time jobs, the wages were generally at the low end of the scale. The support house provided family members with transportation to and from the airports and bus and train terminals. The family members, who were usually women and children along with the occasional brother or father, would be brought to the house and assigned a room. Clean bedding and meals were provided, as was transportation to and from the dock during visiting hours each day. The house managed to survive on the proceeds of benefit events organised in Seattle and the small donations made by the people who used the facility. Getting money to run the place was an ongoing problem. It took every cent that we could bring in. One of the volunteers quickly instructed me on the fine art of applying for food stamps. While I'd gone to the supermarket with women several times in the patch and watched them use these food stamps, I'd never done so myself. When I began receiving them, like everybody else, I put them in the community pot to be used to feed our constant flow of house guests. I remember the first time I went to the store by myself. They set me off to get a few items and I still remember how embarrassed I felt when I handed the cashier my food stamps. <sighs> Here I am, I thought to myself, publicly admitting to being a poor person. My lingering bourgeois affections did not run deep or last long. Pretty soon I was doing a group's food shopping without giving the food stamps a second thought. Yet, even after all these years, I still remember the shame that I felt when I first used them. It's probably conditioned into all of us that poverty is an individual problem, not a social one. After a couple of months at the support house, I was beginning to understand how things worked and what my place was. When the prisoners' families and loved ones returned from the island after their visits, we would pick them up from the dock and drive them to the house for a nice supper. At one point, John began reading to our guests from Mao's little red book before we ate. I guess it was like some sort of Christian's reading from a Bible before a meal. Anyway, it was a mistake that tended to alienate the families. Such mistakes and the fact that John, his wife and the two children consumed a lot of food and were not financially contributing to the operation of the house meant that after two or three months they were asked to leave, which they did, renting a modest home in Spanaway, a suburb of Tacoma. I wasn't financially contributing either, but I was only one person and at this point I was sleeping with Barbara who... Her friend Robin ran the place. While everything seemed okay in that regard for the moment, I could see the writing on the wall. I was unemployed and I could not financially contribute to the operation of the house. Moreover, I was a male, and prisoners resented the presence of men at the place where the wives and sweethearts were staying. Yes, it was sexist, but it reflected their level of consciousness. Sometimes I would drive up to Seattle in one of the houses battered old jalopies, and when I did so, I would often see Roger Lipman, who had long since served as three weeks in federal prison and now lived on Capitol Hill. Roger had a huge two-story house all to himself, and he was looking for a housemate. During one of my visits, he asked me to move in with him. 
back then, I still had a lot of respect for Roger, and it seemed like a good idea, given the situation at the Stiella Coombe house. By this point, Barbara had grown tired of me, and I'd struck up a sexual relationship with Robin. I'd been corresponding with Robin while I was in Leavenworth, and it was with her that I'd made the arrangement to go to the house in the first place. Robin was not very assertive, and when I had first arrived, the prisoner's wife had had a way with me, and no sooner had that happened that Barbara pulled me into her bed. When Robin and I finally did hook up, we took a vacation from the house to go to San Francisco and visit a friend of hers. I found myself broke in a strange city and totally dependent on her. It was not a good situation. So I fled back to Seattle and moved in with Roger. Roger was a highly respected member of Seattle's progressive political community. And quite a community it was too. There were several food cooperatives which included a bakery, a granary, a produce selection and a transportation division which trucked products to and from the city. There was a lot more too. I moved in and Roger and I became fast friends. He made his living working on cars, mostly Volkswagens. As an aircraft mechanic, I was familiar with the air-cooled engines, so we began working together, although it was more like me being his helper. Sometimes the work would be done in the street in the front of the house, and sometimes, especially if it was raining, there was the rickety old one-car garage in the back. I certainly enjoyed the respect that I received from the community too. Indeed, we got our food at 1% above wholesale because we were such upstanding citizens. Red. Good radicals. I still visited the Stialacoon prisoner support house when I could, and when possible, I brought them food and many other items that I picked up in Seattle. My heart was always with them. In time, our business grew beyond what we could do on a curb and a one-car garage. Roger found us a professionally stocked garage with all the trimmings, just off Aurora Avenue. We called ourselves Black Duck Motors after the name of an antique oil can Roger's brother Peter had. Black Duck Motors went on to become an institution. It went through a lot of changes over the years, including housing a women's mechanic collective. At some point while all of this was unfolding, I began to feel the need to do something more political. The co-op community was nice and all, but the politics went something like, We are going to replace evil capitalism with our cooperatives, making the world a better place. Well, it was a little more sophisticated than that, but not much. Black Duck was the most politically advanced element in the community, so... Folks looked to us for direction, but if that direction did not include what amounted to hippie capitalism as the road to revolution, they just weren't willing to listen. It was clearly a dead-end street. I wanted more, so I went down to Spanaway to see John. I had an idea for a prisoner's union and wanted them to help me make it happen. He resisted with all sorts of arguments about why we should stay where we was, unemployed, smoking dope, and generally being a dropout. 
I think his involuntary exile from the support house may have still been gnawing at him. I visited several more times and in due course with the support of his wife, Joanne, who of course wanted them to do something other than smoking weed and goofing off. We agreed to move with his family to Seattle and get a place with me. It took a while to locate the right house but eventually found it on the east side of Capitol Hill. It was a run-down two-story house owned by a black dentist. The plumbing was in bad shape along with most of everything else. I remember working under the house in a crawl space full of spiders and who knows what else. Repairing leaky pipes and dealing with the related problems. Eventually I was able to clutch it together so that it all worked, at least after a fashion. John and Joanne took the master bedroom upstairs and I took the one on the ground floor. The two children, a girl about four and another in the neighbourhood of six, also had their bedrooms on the second floor. All was well. I was with John and we were going to start a prisoner's union. The only problem was that I didn't have a sexual partner. I was not getting laid. Oh yeah, I know, I should have been above all of that. But after years of sexual deprivation, I just wasn't. A side note, of course, like I say, he'd spent a lot of time and a lot of his life in jail before this. So that's what he's talking about. Going back onto the reading now. I did have sex occasionally with a liberal librarian who supported prisoners. She had a good figure and she was nice looking. And she had lots of money. Some relative of hers had died and left her like a million bucks. She was free with the money too. She bought me a reel-to-reel tape deck and a couple of other small goodies without even asking for anything for them. Sounds great, doesn't it? Well... I was into the revolution and she wasn't. For that and other reasons, the relationship was brief. She subsequently took up with another ex-con, a former drug addict who was not political. She bought him all sorts of musical instruments. He fancied himself a rock star. And she even bought him a bar where she could play his music for the public. In due course, it came to pass that heroin was his true love. He pumped much of a fortune into his arm. I was still alone. But I was doing the people's work. So I was reasonably okay with that. I was a mechanic at Black Duck by day and a prisoner's union organiser by night. Since work hours were sort of fuzzy, I had a lot of time for political activity. For example, as a result of my past work as a jailhouse lawyer, I was a card-carrying member of the National Lawyers Guild the NLG, and an active member of its Seattle chapter. I don't know if it was a set-up or not, but I suspect so. Get on this. One night, Joe and Joanne said that they were all going to have dinner with some old friend of theirs. I was along as a third wheel. Or should I say fifth wheel, since the friends were a couple too. When we arrived at the home with the friends community activist whom I'd met before. There was a woman named Jill Dockstedder there. Now there were three couples. Jill and I hit it off right away. She was lean and tall, long black hair and an infectious smile. 
I soon learned that she was a former member of the Revolutionary Union. This is the forerunner to the Revolutionary Communist Party. And that she was three months pregnant by an ex-boyfriend. As far as I was concerned, that wasn't a problem. I was around 30 years old and she was only 19. Now before you start shouting, Lech, let me tell you something that you may not know. Prisoners who've done a lot of time almost always hook up with partners younger than themselves when they get out. One of my crime partners, Bo, a dyke whom you will be meeting later on. Sorry if you're offended by that term, uh, this is just in the book, now back to the book. Hooked up with a woman nearly 20 years younger than her. So this is not some sexist effort to recapture a lost youth or grab some arm candy. No, we've been down all of these years. Social time stopped for us for a while on the inside. And that time, a 19-year-old woman was the same social and emotional age as me. Jill and I had a similar degree of sexual experience and social skill. We left the others shortly after dinner and headed to my place. It was one of those warm Seattle summer nights, perfect for a long, nice even walk, holding hands and talking. The conversation and that long, slow walk home created a connection between us. At the house, we talked more, took a nice long bath in the huge old clawfoot bathtub, and then we went to bed together. It was immediately clear that we met each other's respective needs. And the next day, Jill moved in. She and I were partners for the rest of my time in Seattle. I was in the delivery room for the birth of a daughter, Odessa, whom I helped raise as my own during this period. Odessa was about 18 months old when everything changed, but once again, I'm getting a little ahead of myself. The work of the Washington Prisoners Union, the WPLU, was going well. There were four major prisons in Washington at that time. Washington State Penn at Walla Walla, the reception unit at Shelton, the women's prison at Purdy, and the prison at Monroe. We were getting into the prisons at Monroe where we were working with a solid core group of convicts. We made stickers with the words Washington Prisoners Labour Union around the chain which in turn circled into a clenched fist. We smuggled these into prisoners when we visited so that they could stick them on walls or elsewhere in prison. We also had WPLU membership cards printed. We'd done our work well. 97% of the prisoners at Monroe were card-carrying union members. One Saturday we were all sitting around the house. And if I remember correctly, John and I were playing a board game called Stalingrad. It was a simulation of World War II battle of that name. Anyway, the doorbell rang and then we answered. This short guy with curly hair was standing there. He said his name was Bruce Seidel. Bruce was a former graduate student in the economics department at the University of Illinois and Air Banana Champaign, who was active around prison issues on campus. He had quit when the faculty refused to accept his thesis on how to correct capitalism. He told us that he'd heard about the work we were doing with 
PLU from the National Lawyers Guild and he wanted to join up with us. So I invited him in and in the subsequent discussion we discovered another soulmate. Bruce was one of us, whatever we were. Soon we learned that Bruce was a respected member of the Seattle's prisoners community and over time our respect for him only grew. My sister Anne used to say that there are two types of people in the world, givers and takers. She defined herself as a taker. Bruce, on the other hand, he was a giver. He gave of himself. He gave all of himself to the struggle. Bruce was already publishing a prisoner-orientated tabloid newspaper called Sunfighter. We'd seen copies of it and knew that people thought it was good. The Sunfighter became the official organ of the WPLU. Bruce had been going into Monroe as a volunteer, but he'd been busted smuggling some marijuana into the joints, so they ended up banning him. John and I continued to go in regularly. We would have never smuggled in drugs. For us, these visits were totally political. Oh, we smoked dope on the occasion and, you know, did, did acid or mushrooms. But these were the things we did in the home. We weren't public about it. If asked and under the proper circumstances, we might have smuggled in explosives or weapons into the prison. But under no circumstance would we have jeopardised the work we were doing on the inside by bringing in drugs which at least I saw as a form of escapism. So around that time, the documentary about the Attica uprising, simply called Attica, was released. Using my NLG connections, we attained a copy of the film and over a period of time brought various Attica brothers to Seattle for showings. We'd screen the films at places like the University of Washington, generally raising something in the neighbourhood of 1500 bucks for the Attica Brothers Legal Defence Fund in the process. I would help out with these events for the NLG, but while these comrades were in town, I would also bring them into Monroe under the banner the WPLU to show the documentary to prisoners. For instance, we brought Big Black and John Hill split in the sky in like this. After the show, and the comrades would answer the convicts' questions about the Attica uprising. Of course, the prison administration and all the guards hated us. Well, the union we represented, but they lacked any pretext for banning us. All of this was going on before the US Supreme Court ruled that the prisoners did not have right to organise into unions. So, during this period in 1973, one of the priorities was to establish ourselves as the prisoners' bargaining representative and to be reorganised as much. As part of this, John and I met with the reformatory superintendent, Roger Maxwell, and some of his deputies for an hour and a half sometime in October. The superintendent was not pleased. After the meeting, he announced to the press that he would not even consider reorganising the WPLU. John was big talking with the pigs. He wanted to organise the guards as well. They're workers too. They need to know that their interests are the same as those of the prisoners who are simply unemployed workers. I'd argue back that we're not going to get anywhere with that. The reactionary instruments are the state's apparatus of repression. They don't care what their interests are. Nonetheless, I went along with John's scheme.
We called the Office of Guards Union and asked to address them at the next meeting as the prisoners' outside representatives. We persisted and a union bureaucrat finally and somewhat grudgingly granted us a time slot. We arrived at, on the appointed day at the appointed time. John did the talking. We're with the Washington Prisoners' Labour Union, he began. We're both ex-convicts who went to prison because we were unemployed workers. Prisoners are just working people, simply ones who have been denied work. You and prisoners share the same enemy, the administration. It is not in your interest to be antagonistic to the prisoners organising a union. Prisoners are just working people, and like any working people, should be allowed to organise themselves into a union. Needless to say, that speech was not received warmly by the assembled guards. As we left, I said to John, at least this put a face on the prisoners' union for them. Now you know they were the people that they can talk to. Now while it's not difficult to imagine why the guards and the prison administration might have disliked us, there was one small incident that may well have further soured their opinion of us. Shortly before the above-mentioned meeting on August, about August 12th to the 17th, 1973, the American Correctional Association held its annual correctional convention in Seattle, a shindig that brought together prisonercrats from all across the nation. Now, that year's theme was the psychological effects of long-term incarceration. And the keynote speakers were three former Vietnam prisoners of war. The WPLU was quite strong in Seattle. We had members on the outside and supporters all over town. One of our comrades worked in Seattle Centre where the ACA was holding its convention. As it happens, not everybody who signs up for these events actually turn up. So there's lots of attendee ID badges left over. A friend gave us about 50 of these badges belonging to these no-shows. I wound up with the badge assigned to Captain Jenkins from the Arkansas Correctional System. Like I said, there was about 50 of us. We tried to dress up and look respectable. And we probably thought that we pulled it off, but how do you pass off a 30-year-old belly button pants and blonde hair flowing down past the shoulders as an Arkansas Correctional Captain? Apparently it didn't make much difference because we all got in without a hitch and proceeded to the auditorium for the keynote address. A sort of dignitaries of the ACA were on stage with the three former prisoners of war dressed in their full military gear sitting next to them. We listened in silence as the preliminary speechifiers prattled on about this and that and then came the time to introduce the Vietnam prisoners of war. As the first one got up to speak, I jumped up to my feet and yelled, Why don't you have prisoners from the American prison system here to talk about the psychological effects of long-term incarceration? Ten or fifteen of my cohorts chimed in with a strong, Yeah, how come? While the speaker was trying to regain his composure, I took a few tentative steps towards the stage. Ten people followed me, and as they did so, the other 40 chimed in with them. We want to hear from prisoners in the US prisons. They too began to move towards the stage. 
At this point, the action had the momentum all of its own. As I approached the podium, this prisoner backed off in fear. I took the microphone with about 20 of my comrades standing behind me. The rest of them were on their feet and the audience shouting their support. The ex-POW sat quietly and he, did, and he didn't even say a word. Now, I'm not a very good public speaker, but I nonetheless launched into a rant about the brutality and the destructiveness of American prison system, the class and economic basis of crime, and how revolution is the only solution. As soon as I started talking, a third of the audience got up and left. During the course of my speech, another third followed suit. The last third, the Liberals, or Massachusetts, Stay to hear what I had to say and to listen to those of us who spoke after me. We had crashed and smashed the annual ACA convention. Oh, but we were full of ourselves. They won't be coming back to this town. <laughs> we proudly crowned to each other. To this very day, like I, I don't celebrate birthdays or throw parties. Occasionally on my birthday, someone will ask, are you going to have a party? And I tell them, no, I only celebrate victories. These days, there are far too few of those, but at night, we had a glorious victory celebration. So, during this period, the fact that I was doing support work for the Attica Brothers Legal Defence Fund gained me a certain degree of leadership within the NLG. I also played a leadership role with the Washington State Prisoners Labour Union, was Roger's partner at Black Duck Motors and was part of the Seattle co-op community. I continued to do what I could to support the Seattle Coon Prisoner Support House. I had a few irons of my own in the fire as well. For one, a serviced American Indian movement, AIM cars. In addition to maintenance, I'd go out and steal license plates for AIM vehicles an occasion had helped him acquire guns and explosives. Roger, another man named Dale, and to much of a lesser degree, I also helped produce false identification papers. We were especially proud of a California's driving licenses. Did I mention that I was still on federal parole, like probation at the time? When the takeover had many army reservation in the northern Wisconsin came down. We sent one fully armed and equipped white combat soldier to the front. We should have been sending more, but that's all we could do at the time, so that's what we did. The siege ended just as a comrade and a carload of AIM activists arrived, so they turned around and they came back to Seattle. Our commitment to providing armed troops, well, a single trooper in any case, to support the Native American struggles, along with their other contributions, and as the respect of the Seattle's AIM chapter. Struggles have a way of either advancing or receding. You don't remain stationary unless what's going on isn't really a struggle at all, but it's some kind of non-profit liberal-esque thing. This is true of prisoners' unions too. I made several trips to San Francisco to meet with the leadership of the California Prisoners Labour Union and they come up to the northwest to visit us. They'd grown out of the Folsom strike in 1970 but we were the more radical out of the two. 
They wanted to lobby state legislatures and elected officials for union recognition. We, on the other hand, based ourselves on the organised strength of the prisoners and their loved ones on the outside. On visiting days, we would be out in the front of Monroe Prison handing out flyers to the friends and the families of prisoners. We weren't in it to beg and bourgeois politicians to recognise us as the legitimate bargaining agent for prisoners. It was important to us to be independent, to rely on our own members and to not go chasing after grant money. Grant money is the kiss of death. Before long, those who receive it are doing the bidding of the funders rather than serving their actual constituency. I've seen this scenario unfold time and time again over the years. If you're a radical, a word that means having roots, well then, you want to deal with the root cause of the problem. The rich are not going to give you the money to do that, and if they do, it's just to buy it off or to destroy you. Remember, self-reliance in all things. The WPLU was heaven for a showdown at Monroe. We had met with both the administration and the guards union, but no progress had been made. As a result, Monroe prisoners went on a work strike behind the series of demands. The central one being the recognition of the WPLU as their legitimate bargain agent. While the prisoners were on strike, the outside WPLU organisers were demonstrating in the front of the prison. We used bullhorns and the striking prisoners could hear our chants over the walls. If memory serves me correctly, the strike was bitterly fought, lasting about a week, but the administration finally prevailed. What they did was call in Monroe's resident government council. RCG, the prisoner elected group that advises the administration on issues of concern to the prisoners. When it looked like they weren't going to be able to break the strike by conventional means, the administration offered the RCG the role of bargaining agent for the prisoners. They also offered to meet many of the demands. The RCG called an end to the strike. The prisoners' union was smashed by the old divide and conquer tactic. 97% of the prisoners were union members. However, that membership was a mile wide, but only an inch deep. And to add insult to injury, the administration never fulfilled any of its promises to the RCG, and it even locked up the RCG membership shortly after the strike was successfully suppressed. <sighs> we had given the union our all, but it just wasn't enough. In doing some Monday morning quarterback after the dust settled, we decided that outside people should not be organising prisoners, that the prisoners needed to do their own organising. <laughs> but with that said, here I am today, some 40 years later, vainly trying to organise prisoners from the outside. <laughs> when the prisoners' union folded, John joined the Revolutionary Union, an organisation that would soon become the Revolutionary Communist Party, or RCP. 
which is a group of homophobic Maoists led by a guy named Bob Aviken. Although I'd volunteered at the RU's fashion bookstore in Seattle, later known as Revolution Books, I couldn't relate to the cultishness or the dogmatism. Furthermore, they were Maoists, and by this point I'd recognised what a sort of strategic flaw in the Maoist thought, the three worlds theory, which liquidated class. Since members of the RU slash RCP cult were not supposed to associate with dregs like me, and for other reasons too, John and his family moved out and rented a place in South Seattle. I would visit John and his new place now and then, but over time we saw each other less and less. As for us, Jill and I moved into a new rental house with Roger. When I first moved in with Roger at a 13th Street house on Capitol Hill, he told me that the further east you move towards Lake Washington, the more bourgeois you get. He used the example of so many members of the old left who were now living close to the lake. His reasoning was, the nearer the lake, the more liberal you are. Probably because housing prices near the lake was quite high. Anyway, Capitol Hill was one of Seattle's more edgy neighbourhoods. The new rental house was halfway between Capitol Hill and Lake Washington. At around that time I started doing more NLG work, much of it drumming up support for the Attica Brothers Legal Defence Fund. Life soon settled into a nice routine of auto mechanic work, political work, housework and of course play. With the arrival of fall I received a letter from my mother saying that she was not feeling well. Some years earlier, when I was doing my time, she'd sold off the homestead and moved to an area just outside of Addy, a small town in eastern Washington. Actually, it's really just a slow spot on a two-lane highway up to Colesville, about 60 miles north of Spokane. Jill and I had visited Mum there many times, in addition to seven horses that we enjoyed riding. Mum had two goats and about 50 chickens. All of this and a three-room shack were located on 20 acres of land she had bought with money from the sale of the homestead. Now mum was writing that she wanted me to move to Addy to take care of her place and to feed the horses over winter. When mum calls, we kids come. So I packed up Jill, the baby Odessa, and all of her meagre belongings. Bid Roger and my other comrades farewell as we headed off into the sunrise in my old beat-up Volkswagen bug. What's not to like about spending winter in the country with a woman you love, snow on the ground, a wood-burning stove, and all those animals to care for, and of course the horses to ride? The two of us had had a good winter, and so did Odessa, I suppose, although she was still quite young. From time to time, friends would come from Seattle to visit for a weekend, which always made things that much richer. We'd all go into town, Addy, to spend time with Mum. The winter passed quickly, and soon, spring was in the air. Or at least everything was thawing during the day. We didn't have a television or see newspapers while we were at my mother's, although we did have a radio for entertainment and news. This wasn't an unusual situation for us. There being an old black and white television with a rabbit ear antenna at Rogers. 
but the only time that I remember it being turned on was for the Watergate hearings during the Nixon administration. Anyway, I didn't get much news while we were in Addy, but some events are almost impossible to avoid, no matter how isolated you may be. One such event took place in early February of 1974. A San Francisco group calling itself the Symbionese Liberation Army, the SLA, kidnapped Patty Hearst, the daughter of some ruling class media Mongol. The group issued a communique demanding that tons of food be distributed to the poor in selected areas of California, including the slums of Los Angeles. They also demanded that the Hearst newspaper chain publish the full text of the communique. Someone in Seattle had gotten word to me about this, so I drove to Addy and I bought a copy of the Spokane paper, which was owned by Hearst Sr. Back at home, I read the lengthy document, I was stopping time to time to cry over the way that the SLA expressed its love for ordinary working people, as well as its clear understanding of the cruelty and the viciousness of the US ruling class. The say I was moved by this document would be an understatement. Others would only see leftist rhetoric spouted by fanatics, clearly detached from any sense of reality. I saw some of that too, for example, the pretentiousness of declaring themselves an army with official military titles and, and all of that. But beyond those superficial flaws, however, I recognised the reality of what needed to be done. My model had arrived. Yes, they'd went too far too fast, but in my opinion, they were on the right track. Perhaps not surprisingly, Jill was not as moved as I was by that document. In fact, when I told her that I needed her to stay and take care of the farm while I went to San Francisco by way of Seattle in an offence to hook up with the SLA, she was not a happy camper. Yet, in the end, she relented. So, the reader should note that what follows with respect to this trip and subsequent events is how I remember these things today. The timeline of events here may not be in the right order, although I think you'll get the point. If anything, the fuzziness of this, just it's just testimony of how much was happening back then. So that said, I'll continue with my story. I left Jill with the car and a good supply of food and money. Not that we ever had a lot of money. So after a tearful goodbye, I hit the road with my backpack and my thumb sticking out. Before long, I was at Roger's place. Some Seattle folks had printed up posters that fit perfectly in the advertising slots located above the seats on most trains and buses. They resembled the standard transit ads with one key exception. In light blue on a white background with the SLA's seven-headed Cobra logo. In the foreground, in dark blue with the words, Give them shelter in a bold font. I stuffed my backpack full of these posters and I got onto the I-Freeway on-ramp. Thumb out, heading south. When I arrived in San Francisco, I stayed with my old friend from McNeil Island, George Singh Louie 
who was living in a poor black neighbourhood with his mother. Not only had I written and called ahead at the time so that he could be expecting me, but I'd also agreed to represent George at a parole violation hearing that he was having in federal court a few days later. When I told him that I was coming down, he'd asked me to do this and I'd agreed and that I would if the judge would go for it. George was a great talker and somehow he got the permission from the court to have me represent him. So I stayed with George, working with him on, pen, on his pending case and preparing for his hearing. In my spare time, I was out on buses and trolleys and in public places, putting up my give them shelter posters. Right was on my side and I gave no thought to the law or others around me subjecting the good work that I was doing. One night I was getting ready to go out and put up some posters and George's mum said something to the effect of This is a very bad neighbourhood. A white man like you should not be walking these streets after dark. I laughed and confidently told her I'm doing the people's work. No one will bother me. Walking through the neighbourhood, I briefly thought about what she'd said. What if I was accosted by some group of hooligans? Well, I'll tell them that I'm a revolutionary, I thought, as I dismissed the notion. In the end, I never had any problems on the streets. My efforts to find the SLA proved fruitless. Either the people that I contacted was afraid that I was a cop of some sort, or most likely, they really didn't know where the group was. We posted had run out and then I was about ready to head back to up to Addy when I did manage to locate another radical group, the New World Liberation Front. I don't entirely recall, but my big break must have come from talking to members of San Francisco's left community. I was given a meeting place where I met a man who asked me a lot of questions about who I knew on the left, what I'd been reading, why I was in the area, etc. I could tell that he was not a pig, he was just trying to figure me out and, you know, who we knew in common. As it happened, we both knew quite a lot of the same people. Maybe he'd made some calls up to Seattle. I really don't know, but I was given another meeting. Before that meeting could take place though, I had to go to George's court even. I put my long hair in the ponytail, donned a clean pair of tight-fitting belly bottoms and a flowery shirt and headed down to the federal courthouse with George. Since I was a member of the National Lawyers Guild, some radical Bay Area attorneys showed up. When George's case was called, he and I went to the defence table. The federal judge asked me some questions to test my legal knowledge, which at that time was still quite keen. He then told me that I had no right to be practising law in this court. But if George insisted, and then if we both agreed to be bound by the ruling, he would allow it. George was my friend, and the fact of this matter is that he was detached from reality when it came to me. He thought that I was some kind of legal genius. I won so many cases in McNeil Island that he started believing that I was better than I really was. This, however, was not a matter of legal research or writing briefs. This was arguing before a federal judge in a situation where the facts of the law was not in George's favour. 
I did a good job of presenting George's position, but it was not enough to carry the day. The court ruled against him, finding that he'd violated his probation. His parole was reinstated under conditions that he did not oblige him to return to prison. So at least that worked out. After the hearing, I said my goodbyes to George and his mum, who thought that I was on my way back to Seattle. In reality, I was heading to my second meeting with the NWLF. The NWLF carried out something in the neighbourhood of 20 bombings, and none of the members of the group were ever caught. To this day, the state does not know anything about these people, and for that reason, my discussion of them will be scant on specific details. In fact, all I'm going to say about the setup was that it was good. The houses were prepped for a standoff with the police. They were able to produce their own propaganda and they were disciplined. In fact, the only drawback was that they were Maoists. They took me in and I stayed with them for a week or so. They asked me if I wanted to join them. Although I was tempted, I wanted to return to Seattle and the community that I knew best. I asked them to share their skills with me and they did. I was an eager student and before long I could build a decent pipe bomb. Armed with this new knowledge and some new allies in the Bay Area, I got back on the I-5 or the 1-5, stuck out my thumb and headed back north. While I'd failed in my mission to find the SLA, the trip was nonetheless quite the success. I was pleased. After a brief stay with Roger when we reached Seattle, I headed back to Jill and Addy. Hitching rides as usual, it was spring and mum was ready to move back onto the land. I packed up our family and headed to Seattle. We lived in a rented room at Rogers, but after a couple of months, we moved into our own place on Capitol Hill. Sometime that same year, a book called Prairie Fire, The Politics of Revolutionary Anti-Imperialism was published. It was the political statement of Weatherman, later known as the Weather Underground. And there was a call for above-ground activists to meet and study the book. Since Roger was as close to that element as anybody, he took on the leadership role of putting together the Seattle chapter of the Prairie Fire Organising Committee, the PFOC. While we did not have offices or titles, I would say that Roger was the boss and that I was the second in command, that neither of us commanded anything, so to speak. When the first editions of the book sold out, Roger and I went to Eugene, Oregon and worked in a radical print shop helping to, to produce the second edition. While in Eugene, I took advantage of the printing presses to make some phony birth certificates. I took those to various Washington State departments of licensing locations and told them that I'd just gotten out of prison, showed them me false release papers with a bogus birth certificate. That still worked in those days. I also had other easy ways of obtaining identification papers. For example, library cards, letters addressed to me and similar stuff. 
After all, one can never have too many false ideas. What were the politics of prairie fire? Reduced to its most common denominator, it was this. While people of colour are fighting and dying around the world in the struggle against US imperialism, it is a form of American exceptionalism for us here in the belly of the beast to confine our resistance to only those forms legitimized and approved by the ruling class to confine our resistance to only peaceful forms of protest it was revolutionary in that it called on the people to examine their practice in a new light and to act in solidarity with those physically fighting the US imperialism around the world I won't below the politics of the prairie fire, as you can easily locate a copy online and read it yourself. But I will say that I think those politics are as relevant today as they were then. Personally speaking, I should be here, you know, even more so, because fucking hell, it's gotten worse, hasn't it? Right. Official figures show that the US killed over 4 million people in the Korean War. Former Descent Secretary Robert McMahon wrote that the US slaughtered 3,200,000 people during the Vietnam War. You know, the Vietnamese call it the American War. More recently, we've murdered something like 1.3 million Iraqi citizens. You know, not to mention the thousands of US troops killed and tens of thousands maimed and, you know, countless other who have killed themselves from having to fight these imperialist wars. Who knows how many civilians have been slaughtered by US guns and bombs in Afghanistan? Alongside all of that, there are the ongoing proxy wars being waged by the US in places like Somalia, Yemen, etc. As I write this, the people of Iraq and Afghanistan are fighting and dying in the struggle to eject foreign invaders from their lands. What of our protests here in the belly of the beast? Are we standing side by side with these anti-imperialist fighters risking it all in the armed struggle for justice? Of course not. We are begging the state for a permit for the privilege of being able to march in circles, carrying our signs, protesting these wars of aggression. We totally confined the form of our demonstrations or protests to those sanctioned and approved by the class enemies representative apparatus. The left in the United States is disgusting. I'll have a bit more to say on that subject in later chapters. What I've said so far should give you some idea of, of what the politics of the PFOC were. The anti-imperialism and the rejection of the racist notion of American exceptionalism. The implementation of the PFOC line in Seattle. A study group of 20 to 30 people would meet weekly. Usually at the house Roger and I shared using Pierre Fire as a source material. As we took turns reading paragraph after paragraph, page after page, it became increasingly obvious to people that there was something lacking in Seattle's left community. An underground that could begin developing the ability to strike out at the state and survive the subsequent heat. There was no sudden flashes of clarity, but slow and steadily some people came to understand 
that something more was required for us on the left. Alas, there were few models or examples to draw from. Besides being active in the Purifier study group, following my San Francisco trip, I also resumed my activities with the Seattle chapter of the NLG and my ongoing work in the support of the Attica Brothers in Midsummer. A call came from the headquarters of the Attica Brothers Legal Defense Fund in Buffalo, New York. They were going to have a national demonstration in support of the brothers and were asking for volunteers to help with the organizing. Just as the radicals around the co-op scene had only had their word of will to send one warrior to Menemimi, Menemimi, the NLG only had the resources to send one person to Buffalo. That person was me. And my flight was only one way. I have often wondered if my community was trying to tell me something by giving me a one-way ticket to New York. <laughs> I doubt it. We were always broke back in those days. And any extra money we did have went to the struggle. In any event... I packed my backpack, said goodbye to Jill and Odessa, and headed to new lands and new adventures. I would be spending about a a month or so in Buffalo working with the Attica Brothers Legal Defense Fund. After an uneventful flight, I found my way to the headquarters of of the ABLD. They knew I was arriving and they had work ready for me, as well as a place for me to stay. There were a lot of people busy in the large open office area. I was given some mundane task and eagerly set to work. This was probably early in August 1974. The big national demonstration was to be held the following month. For weeks, things went smoothly for me. Working the ABLD, I got to know some of the high-powered lawyers by name and felt like a part of the group. In the evening... I go back to the house where I lived with a bunch of volunteers. They were permanent volunteers, whereas I'd only be there for the demonstration. The Attica brothers were being held in the Buffalo County Jail, awaiting trial on charges related to the 1971 prison uprising. While doing my daily work for the ABLD, I tried to keep an ear to the ground to find out what the Attica prisoners slash defendants were saying. It soon became clear to me that what the brothers wanted and what the leadership of the Defence Fund were doing, they were two different things. The brothers wanted us to organise the community and build a grassroots movement to free them. The ABLD, on the other hand, sought to win their freedom by influencing state officials and local government representatives. About halfway through my time in Buffalo, the new Attica posters came in from the print shop. They had a prisoner sticking a raised fist through the bars with the words, Attica is in all of us. Emblazoned across both the top and the bottom, if I recall correctly, the bars were the stripes of an upside-down American flag. That night, volunteers were divided into groups and set out to put up these posters in the neighbourhoods all over town. Over the objections of the rest of my crew, 
I used a thin paste of canned milk and wheat flour to put up the posts on the state courthouse, the sheriff's office and the county jail where the Attica prisoners were being held. My reasoning was that the prisoners would feel good seeing the posters as they entered the jail and the courthouse. But that was not the reasoning of the ABLD. The shit hit the fan when the cops complained to the leadership and my crew quickly ratted me out. I was called on a carpet before the powers that be. From their point of view, we had an amicable relationship with the sheriff's office and the courts and what I had done jeopardised that relationship, making it harder for them to do the work for the brothers. I was suitably contrite and promised that it would not happen again. That was strike one. Strike two came when all of us volunteers were sent out to canvas for city councilman, such and such, I forget his name, in specific areas of Buffalo. He was a progressive candidate, and the argument went that if he won the election, it would be good for the brothers. I did not buy that. Moreover, I did not travel all of the way across the nation to lobby people to vote for some politician running for some bourgeois office. I refused. My housemates called me a Stalinist, a tanky, and nearly tossed me out into the street. It would be putting the best light on it to say that my cash of goodwill was at an all-time low at this point. One bright spot in this trip was meeting Morton Sobel with Ethel and Julius Rosenberg were sentenced to death for what J. Edgar Hoover called the crime of the century. Allegedly given A-bomb secrets to Russia, Morton Sobel was sentenced to 30 years. After his conviction, he was banished to Alcatraz, located on an island in the San Francisco Bay. Alcatraz housed the nation's most hardened federal criminals, so Bell had been released from prison five years earlier and I'd learned he was living nearby. When I had some free time, I made agreements to meet up with him in the lobby of the hotel that he was living. We talked politics for about an hour. I was all pumped on the need for an armed struggle, whereas so Bell felt that that approach would be a dead end. I was disappointed that a man who would earn so much respect by his sacrifice would not immediately see the need for a more intense level of struggle. And it was easy enough for me to tar him with the same brush as the rest of his generation. We dismissed them as the old left. We were the new left. While I was quite honoured to have met Sobel, I was disappointed that he was so much part of the old left. Of course, at that juncture, I was using support for armed struggle as the yardstick by which to measure the validity of politics of anybody claiming to be progressive or revolutionary. A side note, I of course absolutely agree with that and completely empathise with them. And obviously it's class war, back onto the book. As the day of the big Attica Brothers demonstration drew closer, my relationship with the ABLD and my housemates was becoming more and more strained. The prisoners liked me because I supported their positions, but that approval did not matter to the lawyers or my housemates. 
early one day. I was working in the office when the LBLD power brokers arrived escorting two black people and a man and a woman. I figured whoever they were, they must be important because the ABLD leadership was treating them the way secret service agents treat the president. I asked somebody nearby what was going on and who these people were. I was told that the man was Jesse Jackson and that he was going to speak at the demonstration. I believe that the woman was Angela Davis, although I'm not certain. The September 13th Attica Day national demonstration was a huge success. People came from all over the country to show their support for the prisoners. While I'm not sure what impact they had on the outcome of the trials, it was nice to see so many people gathered around this issue. I had my stuff stored in the office and ready to go. As soon as the demonstration was over and the crowd had thinned out, I slid up my backpack on, walked to the nearest freeway on ramp for the highway heading west and started thumbing my way back to Seattle. I was pretty much broke, but at least I was on my way back home. One of the things we didn't have to contend with in those days was the level of internalised fear that exists today. I was one of thousands or tens of thousands of people who hitchhiked all over the United States. People picked us up, and when we were driving a car, we picked up hitchhikers. Indeed, at least in my community, it was considered bad form to pass a hitchhiker. Roger and his brother Pete had hitchhiked from Seattle to Fairbanks and back, and I frequently travelled back and forth to places like Adior, France, San Francisco that way. On these trips, I would meet interesting people, both other hitchhikers and those who picked us up. There was an entire subculture living this way, Always on the go, hitchhiking from one place to another and creating community in the process. My trip across the country took about four or five days. When I got back to Seattle and reflected on my trip, I considered it a great experience. I'd been gone about a month and Jill was glad to see me. I was getting caught up on a local events and people were asking me about my Buffalo experience. I decided to write an article for the NLG folks who'd sent me there. I presented the prisoners' demands rather than those of the lawyers and criticised the ABLD leadership for not listening to the prisoners, for using their volunteers to campaign for a guy running for some bourgeois office and for a couple of other things. Since the NLG was made up mostly of lawyers, my critique with the ABLD leadership, or lawyers, didn't go over very well with the Seattle chapter. Not that that mattered, I didn't care too much about what the lawyers thought. In fact, I was becoming less and less tolerant of white liberals posing as revolutionaries. I was trying to make sure that the voices of the Attica prisoners were heard. Things were heating up. And I figured that the same old marching in circles, carrying signs, was not getting the job done. We needed to do more than that. The left needed some oomph. 
I was becoming increasingly satisfied with the mainstream's left's fetish for constraining its actions within the boundaries of bourgeois legality. The Seattle police, like police departments across the country in those days, and still today, were shooting 15-year-old black children in the back and the sheriff's department was murdering prisoners in King County Jail. As George Jackson said, People are dying that could be saved. Adding to the sense of urgency was the plight of the Vietnamese people who were dying by the millions in their struggle against foreign invaders. They too deserved more active solidarity from the American left. I was not the only one that felt this way. Actions were becoming increasingly militant. My definition of militant Mass action being a group activity that involves fire and smoke. When the Seattle Police Department asked the City Council to approve their use of hollow point bullets, we took to the streets with heavy wooden torches that were 2 by 2 inches wide and 5 feet long, with lighted oil-soaked rags at the top. Like a mob from an old Frankenstein movie, we marched on that the city's night council meeting of fiery torches ready to be used as clubs should the police try and stop us. Despite our protests and that the fact that the police had recently killed a number of unarmed black children, city council approved the police use of hollow point bullets. Such ammunition was once outlawed for use in war. For me, that was close to the last straw. We also carried out an action at, at a bank owned by Nelson Rockefeller, who was the governor in New York at the time of the Attica uprising, and who had ordered the massacre of the Attica prisoners. We had a coffin made out of cardboard, painted black, with anti-Rockefeller slogans in large white letters. Inside the coffin was an incendiary device and a flammable material. We marched to the Rockefeller's bank, where we chanted and handed out leaflets to people passing by. At the appropriate moment, with police looking on, we ignited the coffin and ran off into different directions. Nobody was caught, and a photo of the burning coffin actually made the headlines in the Seattle Times. Success. The United Construction Workers was an organisation of black construction workers who felt that unemployed black construction workers should get some of the jobs of construction sites. The white contractors rejected that demand and a mass struggle ensued. The United Construction Workers struggle against the racist contractors was a big deal in the Seattle area receiving a lot of local television and front-page news coverage. The entire left was involved, and it was a struggle that we were determined to win. As this conflict developed, pickets morphed into rowdy demonstrations and the construction sites themselves. Our little group of about 30 would participate in the demonstrations and would otherwise support the efforts of the United Construction Workers when peaceful protests failed to persuade the racist contractors, we moved on to different direct action. Me, Bruce and other workers would don ski masks, 
break free of the demonstrations and charge onto the actual construction site, destroying anything we could get our hands on. Then we'd disappear back into the crowd of protesters at the edge of the site. Not everybody managed to disappear every time. About a dozen or so of us crazies were eventually arrested for crimes such as trespassing and property destruction. But Bruce and I always managed to get away. As an aside, I should let the reader know that I was still on federal supervision while all of this was going on. And my parole officer hated my guts. Or at least I hated his anyway. He would call me in and accuse me of having been in this or that state doing such and such, trying to get me to confess when, in fact, I'd not gone anywhere or done anything. You know, my trips to San Francisco and Buffalo were being cleared by his office. Here's the best part. His name was Robert E. Lee. I'm sure that he knew that I was up to something, but he never figured out what. One night, after a hard day of demonstrating construction sites, an ex-convict named Eddie, who was never caught and thus will remain Eddie. Bruce and I were sitting around Eddie's house, talking about the means we might use to maximise the impact of a small group. I think it was Bruce who suggested firebombing some racist contractors' headquarters. In any case, whoever it was... We all immediately agreed. Since I was on active parole, we decided that Bruce and Eddie should carry out the action. So that next night, armed with a clear plan, they set out to do the deed. And do it they did. The racist contractor's office was completely destroyed. After carrying out the action, Bruce and Eddie returned and recounted their adventure. We decided that we would all visit various sections of the progressive community the following day to feel things out and determine how the action is being received. We discovered that the response of the community was overwhelmingly positive. That firebombing was the small seed from which the George Jackson Brigade would soon sprout. Well, there you go. That's that's chapter seven done. The next chapter is the George Jackson Brigade. This is where the George Jackson Brigade gets together and they actually really start stepping up their efforts. That bombing was one <laughs> of many bombings which they participate in. As you can see, Edmead is entirely frustrated that the liberal class traitor left. Reactionaries are not doing much other than walking around protesting. Uh, he's sick of it. They're sick of it, so they really step up the game and obviously attack the state in numerous ways. You're going to see that in the next episode. So all of these points, all his prison work, all his, you know, something I just love is just how he just he just disappears to some of the state and then just moves in with some other revolutionary comrade and does work with them. I would love to do that. Anybody out there, yeah, if you're a revolutionary and you just want to, like, get me to move in with you so we can do revolutionary stuff, send me a message. <laughs> Obviously, uh, that's what we should be doing, all of these revolutionary organisations out there. 
that's what they should do and they should all be paying rent so that we can all live together and do stuff together constantly that should be our lives why aren't we doing that it's mad you know what i'm saying they done it back then ed mead knows what he's doing get back to me with all your thoughts tell me what you thought uh, share this shit because ed mead needs to get out there this is real revolutionary shit uh, especially in the belly of the beast so yeah get on me get on me patreon patreon.com slash lumpen podcast uh, get on twitter at lumpen underscore radio yeah just give us a message share that shit uh, if you wanna if you can obviously nobody's got money these days cause nobody's got a goddamn job but if you can afford it please support me and Ryan on Patreon Steve gets some money as well cause he helps edit sometimes uh, Ryan needs a new mic I think <laughs> so yeah help, help us out uh, I'm still running on 640p with my monitor because my graphics card blew up the other month heavy but yeah that's how it is i hope you've enjoyed and yeah please comments go tell me what you thought of this because again I, I know a lot of people haven't like even heard of ed mead but obviously this is like i mean ed mead lumpen revolutionary lumpen radio you know kind of goes hand in hand i'm going to keep doing this hopefully after i've gone through all of the chapters I'm going to be able to sit down and listen. I'll read the first part, the first half of the book to myself as well. And then I'm going to have a long list of facts and all of that. And then hopefully I'll do an episode called The Life and Legacy of um, Fred Ham <laughs> of Flippin' Ed Mead. Uh, I've got like Rev Left Radio's The Life and Legacy of Fred Hampton in my head. Definitely go and check that out. That's That's pretty... It's sick. That's obviously where I got this information, this inspiration from. Without even listening to that, this podcast wouldn't exist as well. Dialectics for you. Uh, yeah, so I'm going to sign you off. Where's all my outlaws? We ain't having it no more. All this shit going on and no one saying nothing. Fuck this. Black the Ripper, Low Key, Akala, the explicit on production. Outlaw Volume 2. Them so many men say they're revolutionary But they don't really know what revolution would mean It will mean blood and it will mean pain But it could be us to bring that change Each bar that I publish is blasting for justice Regard your partners as parliament puppets Acknowledge me on behalf of the public Abolish the queen, we demand the republic Little hypocrites are spitting typical nonsense I'm a black bull cause of political content Laugh at my people while your criminals bomb They're militant on the rhythm, I'm killing you with a song Then history you won't read in the textbook Kunta Kente, I bleed from my left foot Never see me on the TV with Jed Wood Tell the BBC they need me on Westwood Screwball crackhead, you don't Crackheads, your crew don't pack text doodles Wax sets, do a whole track that says who's so crap Best salute, though kudos to Ugo Chavez Forget the ice on your hand on your rollie When it's on top, get your ransom from Sony Mangle, dismantle and cancel your cronies Till I go out like Diana and Doldy Talk about my race, why is it funny? Forget a rabbit getting Zionist money Sicker than sickle cell And my name rings bells Might be taking me lightly Cause my skin's pale I can get dark, more dark than a dark more I can get dark like a dark night in dark more Dark like dark four at half past four a.m. So why you dumb is getting dark for? Revolution thing, I'm on the revolution thing Rev, 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 rev. Revolution thing, I 
Revolution ting, I'm on the Huey Newton ting yeah. All these clones are watching the phone But I think we all know who's the king They're on this Martin Luther ting I'm more like Malcolm X without the specs When I speak you hear me loud and clear Fuck Police, me. I say that loud and clear Law abiding, fuck, fuck out here My people struggling out here Going jail and hustling out here Cause the government don't give us nothing out here nothing. Sometimes I need a sign So I ask God and get nothing but air And you wonder why we're living in sin Prison planet, we're all living in bin And you know what's the wickedest ting? No one gives a shit we're just letting them win The minority control the majority They tax our wages, that's robbery They're already rich, we're living in poverty Dishonesty and hypocrisy Nine to five life, that's not for me What the heck, you can keep your check One grand a month can't pay my rent I ain't scared, I run up in the lion's den To the royal family, give up lying for Lent There's people in the army dying for them David Cameron's family got rich off the slave trade Now it's 2014, he's got you working on a slave wage Fuck that And fuck them I don't pick cotton blood. Revolution ting, I'm on the revolution ting. Revolution ting, I'm on the revolution ting. 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 I'm on the revolution Explicit. Everybody, anybody talk revolution shit But do we really know revolution is? Fighting but enlightened All of the guns are controlled by the tyrants Don't get me wrong, we defend ours But real revolution is who we are Long as I drive a car, wanna be stars Is the world stars? Just get ours Far from a part that is hard to regard There's nothing but the darkest part of the scars Cause we march and we dance and we chant and we prance But can't advance past our past fast Caught in division, war for religion Mental prison, nationalism Flag is a cloth that wrapped round your head Proud as a shroud to wrap round the dead We're bound by the clowns that back down and said we're bound to be bound, go back down to bed Long as we see borders and orders Of course we'll resort to retort to the talk with our forces Or just act brainless, avoid the fact that they chain us And all the crimes that are heinous And hope that we can get famous But Kavara t-shirts are not revolution I ain't saying I got the solution To curb our greed of redistributing The wealth of the earth to those of our choosing Real revolution, wanna be a part of it? Turn off the TV, read, start of it Malcolm was reading, Gandhi was reading Toussaint was reading, though we die bleeding We have that man to fight for our freedom We die for dumb shit, why not die for freedom? We have that man to thank for our freedom, we die for dumb shit, why not die for freedom? Revolution ting, I'm on the revolution ting, red, 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 revolution ting, I'm on the 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 revolution ting, I'm on the